It's fun, this, isn't it? The, uh, I was just so struck by the stuff God is doing. I don't, did you watch the young people go out this morning and see how many of them there are that are here to know Jesus and here to build a relationship with him? And just that amazing... There are 300 kids this week coming. It's not just childcare. That is, that is world-changing when 300 people hear the gospel. Um, there's some really exciting stuff going on. That's not what I want to talk about. That's just, I think that's just amazing. Um, so my name's Oli. Uh, it's great to be speaking to you. I'm speaking this morning because uh, a few weeks ago, Al asked me or sent me a message to say, can, can you speak on this day? Um, and the first thing that happened is the thing that happens, to be honest, every time someone asks me to speak, which is that I kind of looked at the diary and worked out, do I have time to prepare this morning's message? Um, and, you know, there's a fair bit of kind of reading and thinking and hearing from God to, to get something like this together. And I wanted to be sure that I had time because preparing a message has to compete for my time with a whole load of other things. Um, I work five days a week. I work often evenings and sometimes weekends as well. Um, I have some church commitments. So we're here most Sundays. We run a small group on a Tuesday night. We, that involves uh, a, a bit of planning uh, around that. And then there's other church meetings as well. So there's work and there's church. Um, and then there's kind of you know, pretty standard domestic chores, hoovering, washing up, getting the gardening done, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's stuff that are good for me. You know, I like to run a couple of times a week. It's critical for my mental and physical health. Um, need to spend time reading my Bible and, pr- and praying. My spiritual health requires that. I want to spend time with my family, with my wife and my kids. Um, and then in amongst all of that, I need to find time to eat and drink and sleep, right? So... And if it sounds like I'm moaning, I'm really not, because I'm sure almost everybody in this room could write a list of the things in their life, at least that long, of stuff that you have to do, right? And so when Al asked me to speak on simplicity, I wasn't sure whether I would have time to prepare. And that kind of got me thinking. See, for a long time, a traditional list of spiritual disciplines alongside prayer and fasting and worship has included this thing, simplicity. But what actually is it? Is it stripping stuff out of my life so that I'm not busy? So that when somebody says, can you speak? My answer will always be, absolutely. I've got loads of time. There's nothing crowding me. Well, to be honest, short of kind of obfuscating my responsibilities completely or just becoming a monk, I'm not actually sure being unbusy is possible. And being unbusy would require me to be so flaky about my commitments, so irresponsible about the people that rely upon me, that I'm not sure it's desirable for me to be unbusy either. So if simplicity is not about being unbusy, maybe it's about owning less stuff. Perhaps it's about getting rid of some of my possessions. Do you know what? Maybe they'll be part of that. As I was preparing this, I, I, I counted. I own currently six pairs of running shoes, three of which are too worn out to actually be used. They're in the back of my wardrobe. I just haven't got around to throwing them away yet. One of them I bought on a bit of a whim and I don't really like. And then there are two pairs that I actually use. So maybe simplicity would be getting rid of the four pairs that I don't really use very often. Maybe. But I'm not actually convinced that God is that bothered about a few pairs of running shoes in the back of my wardrobe. See, if simplicity is going to stand up alongside prayer and worship, it's got to be more than clearing the diary or throwing away old shoes. It's got to be something that starts in the heart, right? It's got to be something that changes me. And that's really what this morning is about. I've been asked to speak on the simplicity of our hearts this morning. 
And we're going to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus talks, I believe, about this. Um, using a word that is a lot less soft, a lot less gentle, a lot less comfortable than the word simplicity. So we're going to be um, looking this morning at Luke chapter 14. So turn there in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, let me just introduce this by saying um, the passage we're going to look at comes immediately after Jesus has told a story, a parable. Um, and the story he told is about a feast, a banquet. So there was this fellow who um, organized a banquet and it was going to be the party of the year, right? You needed to be there. There was going to be amazing food, amazing wine. There was going to be entertainment. This was the thing to be at. And he invited the great and the good. And one by one, each of them came back with an excuse. I'm sorry, I can't make it because of this. And those excuses were kind of okay things, but what actually happened was that they were distracted from something better by something actually less important. And it's in the context of distraction and therefore missing out that Jesus delivers this teaching here. So verse 25 says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. My message this morning is called Hate Your Mum. Um, it's the first time I've ever been in a sermon called that too. Um, I don't know whose job it is actually to put the sermons up on the website, but whoever it is, I want it captioned Hate Your Mum, okay, with no other explanation. Um, we are going to get into this bewildering passage of scripture in a moment. But before we do, you might notice that the word disciple is used a couple of times here. Um, and it's really important, I think, that we distinguish that this is a message, this is a bit of teaching from Jesus about discipleship and not about salvation. And there is a significant difference. Salvation is what God does, right? You can do nothing to earn your salvation. Jesus on the cross paid the price for our sin so that we could be restored to the Father so that our sins could be forgiven. And we can't do anything about that. All we do is accept the gift as it's offered to us. Discipleship is God's doing. Sorry, salvation is God's doing. Discipleship, on the other hand, is largely our doing, right? It's the day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, I guess sometimes even second by second decisions that we make to follow Jesus in our lives, to grow in relationship with him, to grow in likeness of him. Now, it's worth saying we can't do that at all without the anointing and prompting of the Holy Spirit. But salvation is entirely God's doing and discipleship is largely my doing, is largely our doing. And I guess the question might be asked, can you have one but not the other? Can you have salvation but not discipleship? Or can I be wonderfully saved into a new life and then continue to live my old life? Well, I guess so, but I don't know why you would want to. It's a little bit like, imagine if you married into the perfect family. Right? This family that was welcoming and warm and kind and generous. And you said, no, do you know what? I want to use the family name. I want to be officially part of this, but I actually don't want anything to do with them. I don't want to receive letters or birthday cards. I don't want to go to family events. I don't want to talk to these people. I'll use the name, but I don't really want to be part of it. Can you see that, that you can do that, but, but you're missing out massively. 
So I'm going to make a huge assumption at the beginning of this message, and that's that the people I'm talking to today have accepted for themselves the free gift of salvation and are now wanting to pursue discipleship. And I recognize that's quite a big assumption. There might very well be people in this room who have not yet accepted for themselves that gift of salvation. And to be honest, if that's you, the rest of this message doesn't really apply to you. But that seems a bit of a shame. So before we move on, I want to give you an opportunity. If this is your moment, I want to give you an opportunity to accept that gift for yourself now. And we're not going to make a massive deal of this. You will know if this is you, right? If the worship this morning has spoken to you, if something that you've seen has, has touched you, if even the few words that I've said so far have touched you, you will know because your heart will be thumping in your chest. And by the way, the Lord of heaven and earth that we were singing about this morning, that thumping in your chest is him individually calling you out and saying, I want you in my family. Isn't that cool? We're not going to make a huge deal of this. We're just going to pray. And if this is your first time praying this prayer, pray it in your heart if you feel that you are now, if the Father is calling you. Jesus, we recognize, I recognize, that many of the things that I've done in my life have not honored you and have created separation between you and I. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. I accept today the free gift of forgiveness, of salvation. I want to be part of your family. Amen. If you've just prayed that for the first time, that is the most exciting thing ever. Do not leave today without telling somebody about that, okay? We want to help you with the next stage. Brilliant. So now we're all on the same page. Let's, uh, let's crack on. This uh, passage we're going to look at starts like this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, and we'll get into what he said in a minute. But before we do, notice this is not delivered to an individual or to a very small group of people who had a particular problem that Jesus felt they needed to address. This is delivered to large crowds like this one. It's broadcast. It's a message for everybody. Right, So this is for you. And he said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his mum and his dad and his wife and his kids and his siblings and himself, he can't be my disciple. And on the face of it, this is a really simple command, right? Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate everybody. Now, I don't know about you, but I've met some Christians who are absolutely nailing this command, <laughs> right? Who are, who are just doing the best job. Um, they are grumpy with everybody. They don't really like anybody. I'm not actually sure that's what Jesus is asking us to do here. On the other hand, and more seriously, I know that there are some people whose families have done everything in their power to make this an easy command to obey. But me, I find it quite challenging because I quite like my family. In fact, I love them. And the command to hate them is problematic for me because I know these people. And it, even if I didn't like them, there are other passages of Scripture that I think make this a little bit tricky. Take, for example, and by the way, I could have picked loads here, but take, for example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Hmm. So now we have a problem, right? Because on the one hand, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your mum and your brother, right? And on the other hand, we've got 
the anointed word of God saying to us, if you hate your brother, it's a little bit like you're murdering him and you're living as though you don't have eternal life in you. So how do I treat my brother? Do I hate him or do I not? Well, when we're faced with difficult situations like this in Scripture, a really helpful get-out-of-jail-free card is to pretend you speak ancient Greek and go back and find out whether the word used is different in the two contexts and whether that can help you out, right? So the reality is, unfortunately, that we don't get any help here because the word used that's translated hate is the same in both verses. Of course it is. And it means hate, right? In 1 John 3, it means a kind of toxic bitterness that builds in your soul that poisons your relationship with somebody else. And we're commanded to avoid that. And on the other hand, Jesus uses the exact same word in a very different context. See, the context that Jesus uses it in here is actually more like reordering and less like the kind of toxic feeling of bitterness in your heart. It's about demoting one thing so that something else can be promoted. A little bit like how every year, Three teams are relegated from the Premier League so that three teams can be promoted. James Strong puts it like this, if I can find it. It means having a relative preference for one thing over another by means of expressing either aversion from or disregard for the claims of one personal thing relative to those or another. What Jesus is really saying here is, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, your wife, your husband, your kids, they can't be first in your heart. They need to be demoted along with your mum and your dad and your siblings and yourself and everything else, in fact, in order that I might be promoted to first place in everything, in every situation, in every decision that you make. And Jesus uses the word hate here very deliberately to indicate how severe this reordering is to be. Our love for him is to be so burning, so at the center of everything we do, that relative to that, it looks like we hate everything else. There's to be no competition for us in our hearts between Jesus and anything. And Jesus says, that's what it looks like to be my disciple. That's what it looks like to follow me. Jesus actually used the same word when talking about money later on. We're not going to spend ages talking about this today because I'm sure there'll be a chance to look at this passage in later weeks. But Matthew chapter 6 is this really famous section of Scripture where Jesus talks about money. And I think you could paraphrase it by saying, you can't serve God and your bank balance. It just doesn't work. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And in fact, you can't serve both God and anything. God says, no, I'm going to be first. So the question this morning is, I don't believe actually what are you going to get rid of from your life. The question is, what in your life needs to be demoted so that he can be promoted to first in everything? What are the things that sometimes rear their heads and say, no, I want to be first? What do we need to demote? What do we need to uh, relegate? Can you feel the weight of that challenge this morning? I think sometimes when you think about something like this, or when you hear uh, teaching on something like this, it can feel like the solution here is to grip my teeth and to get on with something that I don't really want to do. And there is an element of that, to be honest, in this. See, sometimes I don't really want to demote my freedoms and my, uh, my desires to second place and become a servant of Jesus. Sometimes I let my comfort and my joy 
be first place. Or to use Jesus' language, sometimes I hate Jesus so that my comfort can come first. And when you put it like that, you start to see the power of why Jesus used that word hate. Yeah, That's the, that's the challenge this morning. Discipleship, following Jesus, means putting him first daily as a choice. And that's a discipline. There's no better example of that anywhere in the Bible than Matthew 26. Jesus, just before he's about to go through crucifixion, he knew what was ahead of him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. You can just kind of sense the anguish, right? And prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see that? Do you see Jesus saying, this is what I want. This is what I feel like I almost need, but you're first. And that's a painful, disciplined choice from Jesus. And that's the, the pattern that we're invited to walk in. So on the one hand, putting Jesus first in everything is a discipline. It's hard. And on the other hand, it brings so much life. See, living in a way that means you don't know where your priorities lie is really confusing. If you're constantly asking yourself the question, who am I actually living for? Or what am I actually living for? Life can feel really difficult. Am I living for me? Am I living for my family, for my wife, my children? Am I living for my friends? Am I living for my work? It's maybe a slightly old-fashioned uh, attitude now, but am I living for my country? Or am I living for God? And when we're not sure about that, when we're not sure what we're living for, then whenever we have a decision to make, we can feel like a ship tossed from wave to wave with no anchor in a storm. Where's my center here? What am I going for? Simplicity of heart is about saying, Jesus, you're first. You're first in this. You're first in, in fact, everything. And that is, on the one hand, a discipline, and on the other hand, an amazing grace. The grace of God is that he invites us to put everything else below him. Everything that might threaten to become a little God, a little idol, that will only disappoint us when it fails. To put all of that second and to say, no, put me first. I'm the one who will never fail you. Living a life of simplicity is about having a single, clear focus and purpose. And on the one hand, that's a discipline. And on the other hand, that's a grace. Well, it's time for your paper. I think I've given you a hope a few ideas. What I want us to do at this point is to process a little bit how we're going to respond to this command from Jesus that he's going to be first. And that that's going to be such a severe reordering, it will look like hating other things. So I'm going to pray. We're going to invite Holy Spirit to come and minister to us on this. Jesus, we, we want to follow you. We want to be your disciples. We want to grow in likeness of you. But we recognize that we can't do that on our own. We're willing, but we're weak. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us now? Would you come and reveal to us those areas where you want to work? And would you make us open to you? Amen. Cool. So this is not going to have loads of fanfare with it. I'm just going to invite you to have a little think. Now, under normal circumstances in this situation where I'm faced with a group of people with 
pens and paper, I can command that you work in silence. I recognize that, I, uh, by the way, I'm a teacher, if you don't know, that's, that's where that came from. Um, I recognize I don't have that authority this morning, um, but I, my heart is that this is a moment for you to hear from Holy Spirit and a moment for you to process some of this stuff for yourself, um, rather than a kind of group activity, if you see what I mean. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do on your paper is to have a little think about what it is for you that might compete for your focus. And I've put a list of a few ideas up here, things that struck me. Some of these things are things that for me sometimes rear their head and some of them are not. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but appearance is not that big a deal for me. Um, Some of these other things are. There may be things that are not on that list that you know these are things that sometimes compete with, my, with me, comp- compete with Jesus for my attention. If you're struggling to think of something, ask yourself this question. What are the most important things in your life other than him? Maybe that's a good place to start. And while you're thinking about this, um, it's probably worth saying we're going to be in the business of hating this morning. In other words, we're going to be in the business of keeping these things but reducing their status below Jesus But there may be certain things in your heart that you actually need to get rid of entirely. And I'm thinking maybe about things like addictions, toxic relationships, patterns of sin. Um, And if you know that that's true for you, feel free to write that down as well. Um, It probably won't work quite as well with this next bit, but, but feel free to write those down too. So write down maybe three to five things, something like that. What for you are the things that that challenge Jesus sometimes? So hopefully you've got a few things on your mind. The next thing I want you to do is to think about what hating those things would actually look like. What would it look like to relegate them below Jesus? And here we want to be as practical as possible. Let me give you a really, really simple example just to try and kind of set the scene. Um, in the morning, my eldest son comes into our bedroom every morning and asks if he can play. He has a math game that he likes to play in my wife's phone. Um, but Uh, Catherine's Bible reading notes are also on her phone. And so he has had to learn that she does her Bible reading first and then he does his math game. And so an incredibly simple way of showing him Jesus comes first. Yeah, that's a really practical thing. If you've got children written down on your list, you can't get rid of them. They're your responsibility, (laughs) right? But what would it look like to show them that although you love them, Jesus is first? That, by the way, is the healthiest place for a child to be. It's just below Jesus. What does it look like practically? So go through each of your three to five things and write an idea down next to it.
Okay. And last thing. We can't do this on our own. So the last thing I want you to ponder is, what help would you require from Holy Spirit to actually do this? What help do you need? What do you need to ask from God in order to hate those things, in order to put them below Jesus, not just now in principle, but in practice in your life? What, what help do you need to ask from him? And I want you to finish your piece of work by, you can write this as a prayer if you like, or just a, a set of ideas. What, what, what help do you need from God for this? Okay, I'm not going to be grading these assignments. They're just between you and the Father. But, but as we sing now, we're going to sing a, a, a song of devotion. Have your, have your piece of paper in front of you and just be, be asking Holy Spirit to help you. Let's be, let's be people who are quick to recognize this thing is rising in my sense of importance in my heart and it needs to be back down below Jesus. That's a deliberate discipline.